the House comes to oral questions. Question number one in the name of Angie Warren-Clark. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Housing and asks, how is the government supporting people's, people whose homes have been damaged or destroyed by recent se severe weather in New Zealand? Uh, the Honourable Dr Megan Woods. Mr Speaker, the recent severe weather has caused significant damage to homes across the North Island, displacing thousands of people. To date, there have been over 9,000 rapid building assessments and reassessments completed in impacted regions in the North Island. In Auckland, there have been 664 red placards and 2,292 yellow placards issued. Across the regions impacted by Cyclone Gabrielle, including Tairawhiti, Hastings, Northland, Waikato, Central Hawke's Bay and Wairoa, 183 homes have red placards and a further 1,332 homes have yellow placards. While initial assessments are still to be completed in isolated areas, over 90% of rapid building assessments are completed and Government will continue working closely with councils to complete the assessments. Supplementary. Who are responsible for conducting the rapid building assessments? Rapid building assessors are trained volunteers who are registered with MB to be deployed where required to assess whether affected buildings in the area can be safely used. Assessors are either qualified with engineering or building science degrees or they have building consent officer experience with appropriate qualifications from, from endorsed programmes. While some territorial authorities have been able to coordinate a sufficient pool of local rapid building assessors to undertake the assessments, the Government is coordinating building management support for territorial authorities who need further resources to conduct these assessments. To date, approximately 14 rapid building assessors have been deployed from around New Zealand and they have been deployed to Kaipara, Waikato, Hastings, Tairawhiti, Wairoa and Tanui. Further supplementary, what support has the government provided to those people who have been displaced by the recent severe weather? The government's temporary accommodation services provide, has provided support to displaced people across Northland, Auckland, Tairawhiti, Bay of Plenty, Waikato, Hawke's Bay and, and, and Tararua District. 1,600 households have registered for TAS support so far and we're expecting that to increase to over 3,500 households across those regions. The current priority for TAS is to ensure there is an adequate supply of short-term accommodation to meet immediate housing need as part of the disaster response, which includes commercial accommodation like motels, hotels and motorhomes. How will the government support households who will be displaced for longer periods of time? Given the severity of the weather events, many households will be displaced for longer periods of time while their damaged or destroyed homes are repaired or rebuilt. We're already investigating longer-term accommodation options to accommodate those displaced by the events, such as porter cabins, renting or buying new homes, and supporting iwi-led temporary housing initiatives. We have experience delivering these types of accommodation solutions, including the temporary village in Westport following the flooding events in 2021. When no longer needed for TAS purposes, houses, houses cabins and infrastructure from TAS villages have either been sold at residual value 
values to social housing providers or first home buyers, or ownership has been transferred to local councils for the benefit of the local community. Uh, question number two, in the name of Christopher Luxon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister and reads, does he stand by all of his government statements and actions? Uh, the Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, yes. How does he reconcile his claim he sent memos to the public service about constant spending, quote, many times over the last five years, quote, with Public Service Commissioner Peter Hughes' statement today that he has never received one? Uh, Mr Speaker, in fact, the memo uh, in question, or the memo in question, the, perhaps the best example of the memo in question, uh, was in fact a minute from the Cabinet. Um, that is about the highest form of memo that you can get within the New Zealand Public Service. Uh, it, which is... Yeah, which, which I'm surprised the member opposite isn't aware of that. Uh, I'd also note that I have met as the Minister of the Public Service on a regular basis, normally several times a year, with all of the chief executives of the public service government departments in which this has been a topic of conversation. They should be well aware of the government's expectations. So, so why is Peter Hughes contradicting him? He isn't. <laughs> um, what did he actually do to follow up on his promise in 2018 to cut spending on consultants, or was it just a press release that he fired out and odd directives and memos? Right, Mr Speaker, as I just indicated to the member, that was, there was a cabinet minute that made clear the government's expectations to all government agencies. So why hasn't there been a reduction in consultant spending? Well, Mr Speaker, ultimately, government department chief executives make the decision on how best to deliver uh, on the government's priorities. Um, we've been very clear that we want to see less spending on consultants and contractors. Does he stand by his claim that the $16 million spent on the cancelled TVNZ-RNZ merger was, quote, not necessarily wasted, quote? Uh, Mr Speaker, there's no question that some of the findings from that uh, will point to the future direction of government policy around public broadcasting. That landscape is changing significantly, uh, and anybody who wants to bury their head in the sand and pretend otherwise um, is clearly going to end up with a public media sector that's moribund. Is it a waste of money to pay the TVNZ-RNZ merger board $8,000 a day to keep working on a project that he's cancelled? Mr Speaker, the, the, we were very clear when we, and I was very clear when I announced that that work would not be proceeding, that there would be some wind-down costs. I'd expect that the departments and agencies concerned get through those as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Does he agree with Willie Jackson, who said the merger could be back post-cyclone recovery? Uh, Mr Speaker, we've made it very clear what the government's uh, priorities are here. Radio, Radio New Zealand and TVNZ will continue as independent entities. Which is worse? His track record as public service minister where he failed to rein in consulting spending, his track record as education minister where he failed to lift achievement, his track record as police minister where he failed to bring down crime, or his track record so far as prime minister where he's failed to do anything? <laughs> Mr Speaker, I reject all of the above. Uh, but in particular on crime, I'd note, I'd note, Mr Speaker, that when, during the time that I was Minister of Police, the number of ram raids that were being conducted fell, fell by three quarters. So a uh, 75% reduction in that, Mr Speaker, through some intensive intervention on the part of the government. Uh, Mr Speaker, the member so far doesn't seem to be able to get past bumper sticker slogans and come up with any concrete actual ideas about how to make New Zealand a better place to live. Uh, David Seymour. Can the Prime Minister explain mathematically what impact 82 new truancy offices will make on just under 100,000 chronically absent students? 
Uh, Mr Speaker, the attendance officers are going to be working directly with schools to support their efforts to get those kids who are currently not engaging in education regularly back into the classroom on a more regular basis. Uh, as we know from previous experience, that can take a number of different forms. In some cases, simply more active engagement with the families can get those kids attending more regularly. In other cases, it requires more intensive intervention, which is why this is only one piece of that puzzle. We've also put additional funding into the attendance services who do that more intensive work with the kids who are not enrolled or who are not regularly engaged and who are at that chronic end of non-attendance. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Uh, point of order, David Simmel. Mr Speaker, the, the question was very specific and turned on the word mathematically. Now, he's made lots of general statements, but he hasn't addressed the fact that he's got 82 people trying to chase about 100,000 kids. I completely disagree. Any further supplementary? Are you challenging my ruling? No, well, don't do that. <laughs> question number three, Sarah Pellet. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, my question is to the Minister for Women and asks, what work is underway to progress gender equity in New Zealand? Mr Speaker. Uh, the Honourable Jan Tanetti. Happy International Women's Day. The theme of the 2023 International Women's Day campaign is Embrace Equity. The Government has a strong commitment to progressing gender equity through pay equity. Since the passing of the amendment to the Equal Pay Act in July 2020, six claims have been settled so far, resulting in over 110,000 people having their pay corrected. And there are another 27 active claims underway. Supplementary. What pay equity settlements have recently been reached? Mr Speaker, this week a historic pay equity settlement was signed for 1,200 school librarians and library assistants and around 400 science technicians, and I was delighted to be able to attend the signing ceremony. For school librarians and library assistants, the new pay equity rates will see them receive average pay increases of approximately 10 to 38 per cent, and for science technicians, they will see pay increases ranging from 20 to 40 per cent. Um, supplementary, Nicola. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Minister, has the Minister, as part of her work on gender equity, encouraged the Minister of Health to adopt Nationals policy to extend free mammograms to women aged 69 to 74 years old, which could save 65 lives a year? And if not, why not? Mr Speaker, the Minister of Health and myself have had discussions with, uh, around the Women's Health Strategy, which is in development at the moment. That is open until the 17th of March. For input, I would, I would encourage that member to put a submission in. Supplementary. Sarah Pellet, supplementary. What action is being taken to reduce the overall gender pay gap in New Zealand? Uh, Mr Speaker, the gender pay gap in New Zealand is sitting uh, stubbornly at 9.2 per cent, but I will say that the gender pay gap in the public service is at 7.7 per cent, which is the lowest it's been on, re in, on record, and has come down from a 12.2 per cent in 2018. That has happened because there has been a focus on this, Mr Speaker. Uh, there have been targets set and a relentless drive by the public service to bring that pay gap down. Supplementary. What work is being done to address pay transparency? 
Mr Speaker, Minister Radhakrishnan and I have asked for advice on what a pay transparency system in Aotearoa, New Zealand could look like and work is underway to develop options. Whilst pay transparency is one way to ensure people are paid fairly, I don't see it as a silver bullet. The National Advisory Council on the Employment of Women has been appointed as the National Advisory Group on Pay Transparency and has been engaging with the business sector to help inform this work. We are hoping to be in a position to provide an update on this work in coming months. Well uh, question number four, Nicole McKee. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the new Minister of Conservation and reads as follows. Does she believe that the Jobs for Nature programme represents good value for money? Uh, the Honourable Willie Jean Prime. Kia ora, Mr Speaker. Yes. The Jobs for Nature programme has ensured that conservation work is at the heart of economic recovery, providing both significant social and environmental outcomes. Now in year three, over 4,900 people employed through the programme have done more than 3.7 million hours of conservation work around Aotearoa. What that means for our environment is more predator control, more native tree planting, more weed control and more people feeling empowered and equipped to connect and care for the whenua. Supplementary. Can she confirm that as at the 31st of December 2022, the Ministry for Environment website showed that just over $1 billion in funding had been contracted and 6.3 million hours of work had been completed? Uh, Mr Speaker, I am the Minister for Conservation. I can talk to what projects the, minister, uh, the Ministry for Conservation um, has funded. Supplementary. Is the Minister aware that with those figures it means $167, which is almost eight times the minimum wage, is being paid out for each hour of work and what are New Zealand taxpayers getting for that money? Uh, Mr Speaker, what, um, what, our, what Aotearoa is getting for the money that we have invested through Jobs for Nature is more than 4,900 people being employed at a time when we were facing an economic crisis and the threat of unemployment. What New Zealanders are getting is 3.7 million hours of conservation work that has been done. Through that, we have more predator control, more native planting. Um, these are huge benefits for Aotearoa. Supplementary. Has she asked the Minister of Finance how long the government can keep borrowing money to fund low-skilled jobs at $167 an hour? And if she has, what did he say? Yeah. Um, yeah. Mr Speaker, the work that people have done for our tile is work that we should be proud of, that we should all be grateful for. I would not describe it in the way that that member has described it, Mr Speaker. Um, no, I have not yet had conversations with the Minister of Finance um, about uh, further opportunities. Not here, yeah. Um, about further opportunities in terms of those people who have worked on Jobs for Nature projects. 
Uh, supplementary, the Honourable uh, David. Can the Minister confirm that the jobs for nature included the hire of helicopters to poison wilding pines and control wallabies and that the cost of hiring a helicopter is more than the minimum wage per hour? Yes, I can confirm that, Mr Speaker. Uh, question number five, Nicola Willis. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance and asks, what has been the cost to taxpayers so far of work associated with proposals for a TVNZ-RNZ merger and a New Zealand income insurance scheme? Uh, the Honourable Grant Robertson. Mr Speaker, I am advised that the latest available total cost of the work on the TVNZ-RNZ merger is $16.1 million. I am further advised that the latest available total cost of the work on the New Zealand income insurance scheme is $20.7 million. The final costs will be confirmed through the usual parliamentary accountability processes and, of course, detailed questions about these programmes are best directed to the ministers responsible for the relevant appropriations. Are there any ongoing costs associated with these proposals? And if so, why are New Zealand taxpayers continuing to pay, work, pay for work on policies the government does not think are fit to implement? Uh, Mr Speaker, as the Prime Minister has already indicated, there will be both wind-down costs and at the time of the announcement around the New Zealand Income Insurance Scheme that there would be ongoing policy work on what is a gap in our social security system. How much money, in addition to the $36 million already poured down the drain, will this government throw at these zombie policies? Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, as noted, I said, as I said yesterday to the member, I appreciate the fact, which she's just confirmed with that question, that she doesn't care about those people made redundant in New Zealand or those people who lose their jobs through health conditions or disabilities. So, as noted at the time of the announcement, there will be ongoing policy work. The member wants to reflect on policies where things were put down the drain. She might want to reflect on the millions of dollars spent on a sheep farm in the Saudi desert by the former national government. Um, order. Is it the case that these flawed proposals have not been stopped but are instead being kept in hibernation, being kept warm with taxpayers' money, ready to return to life if Labor ever wins another election? Mr Speaker, the, uh, the interesting thing is that the member hasn't been following along very closely because on the day that this was the, uh, the announcements were made by the Prime Minister, it was made clear that actually looking after New Zealanders who lose their jobs through no fault of their own is a gap in our social security system. What the Prime Minister said at the time was now was not the right time to do that with economic conditions as they are. So the member, if she had been following along, would know the answer to her question. So if it's such a good idea, why isn't it going ahead? Mr Speaker, because there's a cost of living crisis which the member keeps telling us about over and over again, which the member keeps telling us about over and over again, yet whenever the government proposes anything that might help people with the cost of living, the National Party oppose it. That is, I might say, other than their own proposal to give tax cuts to the highest income earners. I stand proudly on our record of backing New Zealanders when they're facing a cost of living crisis. So can we now conclude that the Minister of Finance remains very emotionally attached to the income insurance scheme and the jobs tax that he wanted to fund it? 
but that even he acknowledges that slapping an $800 average tax on New Zealanders will never be a winner, and that therefore this is a policy that will only succeed if he somehow uh, undermines the Prime Minister. Speaker, Mr Speaker, um, that speech from the member was an interesting insight into the values of different political parties. I will stand proudly on being emotionally attached to having New Zealanders in work, to having New Zealanders looked after, so that when they get sick, we look after them, so that when they lose their job, we look after them. That's what we did during COVID. So the member might think it's all a political game or some some part of the Wellington High School debating society that she's part of. For me, it is an emotional matter to have New Zealanders in work and look after them. Uh, question order. Question number six, Rawiri Waititi. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr Speaker, tēnā tātou i tāhua tanga tātou wahine, he wahine he whenua kāmate te tangata. My question is to the Prime Minister. Does he stand by all his government statements and actions? Mr Speaker. You need to read it as... Yeah, it's as... And policy, the last word is policies, not actions. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, yes. Do you want me to repeat that? No, it's OK. Does he stand by his statement? Uh, uh, inverted commas... Do I think we need to find Matatini a sustainable funding platform? Yes, I do. End quote. If not, why not? Mr Speaker, yes, I do. How can he, how can he be comfortable with current levels of funding for Kapahaka and Aotearoa when currently the government does not currently provide any funding for the regional Matatini competitions or other levels such as Tamariki and Rangatahi performances? Mr Speaker, I'm not, and that's a, a topic of active conversation at the moment. What is his response to multiple research reports that show that Māori, including rangatahi, who participate in kapahaka, achieve higher academic results, have better physical health, improved cultural belonging and mental wellbeing? Mr Speaker, I welcome those reports. I welcome to Matatini. Uh, I do believe that the renaissance in kapahaka that we're seeing through our education system at the moment is a very, very welcome development and one that we should all be proud of. Uh, and it's one that we as a government are keen to support. A point of order, Mr Speaker. A point of order, Rawiri. I seek leave to table uh, the reports from Ngā Pai o Tamara Matanga from June 2022, which were commissioned by Te Matatini that demonstrate the value of kapahaka to Aotearoa. Are they publicly available? No. no. Um, leave a sort for that purpose. Is there any objection? There is none. They may be tabled. Supplementary. Will he increase the budget for Tamatatini and all levels of kapaka so that it's equitable to the funding the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra or the, and the New Zealand Royal Ballet to recognise the highest standard of cultural excellence that is only to be found in Aotearoa? If not, why not? Uh, Mr Speaker, as the member is aware, the budget is in May, uh, but I can tell him, as I've said publicly, that we are having discussions about how best to ensure that we can fund Tamatatini, how best we can support the renaissance of kapahaka that has been happening, uh, and I do expect that there will be some further announcements coming in due course. Um, the Honourable Pieni Hemare. Uh, Mr Speaker, to the Prime Minister, can the Prime Minister confirm 
that the, some of the major sponsors of Te Matatini uh, most recently held in Tamaki Makoto include government departments such as ACC, the role of Te Whatuora, Te Akafaiora, and Te Tahuhu o Te Mātauranga. Mr Speaker, yes indeed I can uh, confirm that and I also want to acknowledge and thank all of the private sector sponsors uh, who put a significant uh, backing into Tamatatini, an amazing event that I had the opportunity to attend in Auckland. I think it's one that we should all celebrate as, as New Zealanders. Um, it, is a, it, is a, it was an amazing event, a fantastic spirit uh, and just great to see people putting their heart and soul into something that they're clearly so proud of. Uh, question number seven, Erica Stanford. Thank you Mr Speaker. To the Minister of Education. What was the percentage of time associated with unjustified absences in Term 3 2019 compared uh, to Term 3 2022? And has the percentage of time associated with unjustified absences increased over that period? Mr Speaker. Uh, the Honourable Jane For 93.5% of the time during Term 3 2022, students were either present or away from school for a justifiable reason such as illness. For 6.5% of that time, students were unjustifiably absent when measured as half days. For 95% of the time during Term 3 2019, students were either present or away from school for a justifiable reason. For 5% of the time, students were unjustifiably absent when measured as half days. Due to COVID-19, all absences went up, but proportionality, proportionally more absences were justified. In other words, proportionately, when you look at the total time spent in the classroom, more absences were due to justified reasons in Term 3 between 2019 and 2022. The Minister has given me a completely different number comparing the percentage of unjustified absences to justified absences, and that is not what I asked for. I think the member is going to have to accept the form of that the minister has given the answer because the information does address the question. Supplementary question. Why did the minister say in this House on the 23rd of February that, quote, unjustified absence is dropping rapidly between 2019 to now, end quote, when the official data shows that unjustified absences have climbed to the highest ever percentage recorded in Term 3, 2022? Mr Speaker, because as I said in my first answer, all absences went un under COVID-19, but proportionately more absences were justified. In other words, proportionately, when you look at the total time spent in the classroom, more absences were due to justified reasons in Term 3 between 2019 and 2022. Mr Speaker, what I will say is that I do appreciate that attendance data is complicated and does often use different bases for talking about the same thing. So therefore, Mr Speaker, I have asked officials to consider what the best way of describing student attendance is so that we can all understand where the real issues are and focus on making improvements. Supplementary question. Who is correct? The Ministry of Education in their Term 3 attendance report who said there was an increase in the percentage of time associated with unjustified absences in Term 3 between 2019 and 22, in 2022, or the Minister of Education who said unjustified absences dropping rapidly between 2019 to now. 
Mr Speaker, if the member reads the same report, she will also see that the Ministry of Education say that uh, proportionately, when you look at the total time spent in the classroom, more absences were due to justified reasons in Term 3 between 2019 and 2022. Are there more children taking unjustified absences in 2022 compared to 2019? Uh, Speaker, as I've said, due to COVID-19, there are more children taking absences full stop, but the proportion between the two shows that there are more justified absences. This, Mr Speaker, is a really pleasing trend. Uh, point of order, Honourable Michael Waters. Mr Speaker, that could not possibly have addressed the question. Mrs Stanford was very clear that she was talking about unjustified absences and the answer referred only to justified absences. Um, the Honourable David Parker. Speak to the Honourable Michael Woodhouse. It didn't, and she answered the question in the first part of her answer. Yeah, in my opinion, um, I, I'm going to give um, the member an additional supplementary to us, but I'm, it's not in punishment to the minister because I think the, the minister has provided the information. But in the interest of the, the House knowing, I will allow. Uh, Erica Stanford to have an extra question. Supplementary question. Why is it that when she was shown this graph by a journalist yesterday and asked if she accepted that the unjustified absences had increased since 2019, did she say no? So, Mr Speaker, because as I'm trying to explain here, we're talking about two different data sets, and one data set shows something very, very different, but the same thing. Now, I know that sounds confusing, which is why, which is why, Mr Speaker, I'm talking about proportionality of, of the absences as a whole. When you see and look at the proportion of total time kids were in the classroom in Term 3 2022, there were more justifiable absences than in Term 3 2021 and, in fact, 2019. That, Mr Speaker, is a promising trend. Supplementary question. Can she finally admit that the total number can increase even though the percentage, as she explains, is decreasing. Mr Speaker, as I've said, I'll repeat what I've said. Absences, absences overall in COVID are greater. I said that three times now. Uh, David Seymour. Is, is the Minister trying to say the bad news is more kids are missing school, but the good news is it's justified? during COVID, when people have been sick, you are going to get more people who are going to be absent from school. Supplementary question. Why is she spending her time trying to manipulate the data to desperately try and show that unjustified absences are declining when the Ministry of Education have clearly stated that unjustified... Order. I don't think a, a, a member can ask a question which implies that the minister is lying or, as, as in, in this case, you use the word manipulating, tantamount to saying that you're making it up. Uh, point of order, um, Honourable Michael Woodhouse. Mr. Mr Speaker, you may well 
be correct, and I'm not challenging that the question may have been out of order, but to rule it out of order on the basis that uh, the member was accusing the minister of lying is, I think, quite a long bow to be drawing. Now, as you know, that is a serious breach of standing orders, and I think it might have been better to use a different term. That might be so, but I've made my rule now. Word that question, Mr Speaker? Um, no, that question's gone. Why did she say yesterday, quote, I almost need a whiteboard to explain it to you because it's so complicated, end quote, when comparing percentage figures is a skill that's taught at year eight. Mr Speaker, because the way when you are using two different data sets is obviously really difficult to understand, to compare the two. Mr Speaker, the data systems need work to be more accurate and efficient. That means they need investment, which is why we're putting in $7.7 million over three years to do just that. This will fund experts who will be assigned to work directly with schools and communities to improve the quality, understanding and the use of attendance data. Our question number eight, Ibrahim Omar. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Immigration and asks, what recent action had the government taken to support victims of the war in Ukraine? Uh, the Honourable Michael Wood. Mr Speaker, New Zealand stands shoulder to shoulder with the people of Ukraine in the face of Russian barbarism. And one of the important areas in which we have provided that support is through our immigration policy. And so last week I was pleased to announce that the government will be expanding the 2022 special Ukraine visa to ensure Ukrainians in New Zealand can continue to bring their family members here as the war continues. The policy allows eligible family members to be granted a two-year visa with work rights or study rights if they are under 18. This recognises that New Zealand's ongoing commitment to support Ukraine over a year on from Russia's, Russia first launching its illegal invasion. We've also made a number of other changes to the settings to support the intent of the visa and ensure those looking to sponsor family members have as great a certainty as possible about how the process works. Supplementary. How long do individuals now have to make an application under the special Ukraine visa? Mr Speaker, the window for expressions of interest to be submitted was due to close on the 15th of March this year. This has now been extended by one year to the 15th of March 2024. We're also extending the period in which someone granted a visa must tra travel to New Zealand from nine months to 12 months, noting that securing travel from Ukraine to New Zealand can be difficult to organise given the current situation on the ground. Supplementary. How is the government making it easier to sponsor relatives to come to New Zealand? Rather than relying on one family sponsor, as, the, as per the uh, current policy, each application will now have a nominating family member who meets the New Zealand and Ukrainian residency requirements and an acceptable sponsor who will take on financial responsibility for the applicant. So that in some instances, someone who isn't related to the applicant can take on the financial responsibility for the claimant. This makes for a much more flexible regime in terms of New Zealanders who might want to support a Ukrainian person to seek shelter in New Zealand. The sponsor, whether as a family member or another individual, will remain responsible for arranging and funding travel to New Zealand, as well as accommodation and living costs once they arrive. Supplementary. What other changes had the government made to make the settings of the special Ukraine visa? Mr Speaker, we've also broadened the criteria for those who can sponsor a family member to include those with Ukrainian heritage 
rather than just those who were born in Ukraine or are Ukrainian citizens. This will effectively increase the pool of people who are able to sponsor someone to seek shelter in New Zealand. Those who can be sponsored under the category is also expanding to include other adult family members who have lived with this family for a substantial period of time. This could be aunts, uncles, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, first cousins and step-siblings. Together these changes reaffirm New Zealand's commitment to supporting Ukraine and her people at this most difficult of times. Uh, question number nine, Jan Logie. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Associate Minister for Workplace Relations and Safety and asks, does she agree with Australian Prime Minister Albanese, who said, quote, right now there's not enough transparency around the gender pay gap in workplaces. That's why we're introducing a bill to fix that, unquote. If so, when will she introduce a pay transparency bill? Mr Speaker. Um, I call the Honourable Branko Radhakrishna. Mr Speaker, I do agree with Prime Minister Albanese and this government is absolutely committed to reducing the gender and ethnic pay gaps and improving pay equity more broadly in New Zealand. Officials from MB and the Ministry for Women are progressing work on what a pay transparency system that is fit for New Zealand would look like. This includes considering a range of options that includes both policy and legislative options. We, we, we are also working with NACU, that's the National Advisory Council on the Employment of Women, in their role as the National Advisory Group on Pay Transparency to ensure that we get it right for New Zealand. It is also important to remember that this is one part of a broader suite of initiatives that this government uh, has progressed to address pay equity issues. Mr Speaker, this is a government that's committed to improving pay equity. We've taken a number of steps already towards this and we will continue to do so. Supplementary. Does she consider increasing all women's pay a bread and butter issue when it's so essential for putting the bread and butter on the table? Mr Speaker, as I've already said, pay equity issues around fairness of pay is a priority for this government. We have already progressed an amendment to the Equal Pay Act in 2020. Um, that has meant that over 104,000 people have had an adjustment to their pay through pay equity settlements. In fact, the Minister for Women has just um, uh, outlined to this House recent steps taken towards that. We have passed fair pay agreements, um, the Fair Pay Agreements Act 2022 that will help a number of people uh, towards pay equity. The Public Service Commission uh, is requiring public sector agencies to report uh, both their pay gaps and action to fix those pay gaps. And we have a number of employment action plans um, that have set out a range of actions designed to target exactly this. Supplementary. Does she acknowledge the research that shows Pacific women being paid only 75 cents to Pakia man's dollar is largely a result of unconscious bias and discrimination that could be addressed by pay transparency? Mr Speaker, I acknowledge that piece of research and also research that was commissioned and undertaken by the Ministry for Women that finds that 80% of a gender pay gap was unexplained um, and is generally based on the, the, the result of conscious and unconscious biases. Um, and also various other factors that impact negatively on women's recruitment and pay advancement. That is exactly why we are progressing work to look at what a pay transparency system that is fit for New Zealand could look like. Considering we've had an Equal Pay Act for 50 years, 
The public sector who has pay transparency has closed the gap, but New Zealand more broadly has seen a widening in the gap recently. Why is the government not acting with more urgency to introduce pay transparency legislation? Mr Speaker, as, I've, as I have said time and again in this House today as well, we are progressing work to look at what a pay transparency system that is fit for a New Zealand context would look like. That requires work and that work is underway. In the meantime, we have undertaken a range of steps to address pay equity more broadly that has resulted in the impacts or what we are seeing of the narrowing of the gap that the members just outlined. Why has the government referred the pay transparency work to NACU, delaying implementation, when Labour historian Sabelle Locke has said, quote, the research needed for setting up a proper pay transparency system for the private sector is already there. That is not true. We do need more research into this, into what a fit-for-context, fit-for-purpose system would look like. That's exactly what we do. I reject the member's premise that this is delaying the work. We're working with NACU and their networks to make sure that we get this right. What does she say to Mind the Gap, Darwin Stewart, who said, quote, an advisory group is not enough to put more money in people's wallets. We may need much greater urgency. An advisory group is what we need to ensure that we get this work right. Uh, question number 10, Soraya Pekir-Mason. Mr Speaker, to the Minister for Whānau Order. How has Whānau Order responded to the communities affected by Cyclone Gabriel? Mr Speaker. Uh, the Honourable Penny Henare. Mr Speaker, firstly I pay tribute to those who lost loved ones and all of the whānau affected by uh, Cyclone Gabriel and the recent weather events. There's something about a crisis that continues to bring our communities together and Whānau Order certainly stood up to play their part. Whānau Order commissioning agencies have provided a range of supports through their network of partners to whānau, including the support of over 10,000 whānau members affected by the recent weather events, reprioritised over $3 million in support to access to kai, clean water, medical support, health support and temporary accommodation for displaced whānau, supported 800 displaced recognised seasonal employees, otherwise known as RSC workers, stood up communication support such as call centre for triage and communication and translation services, and through the Pacific Medical Association Medical Assistance Team, offered 461 mental health checks and 235 GP medical checks have been completed, and also uh, continuing um, to uh, give vaccinations uh, for measles and COVID-19 during this time. Whānau Order is certainly playing their part. Sub, how was Whānau Order able to support communities in response to these events so quickly? Uh, Mr Speaker, Whānau Order Commissioning Agencies, as with COVID-19, were able to pivot their business-as-usual service provision and rapidly mobilise to surge support into affected communities. This included the movement of nearly 600 Whānau Order workers into affected areas and into supporting those areas. Mr Speaker, this flexible infrastructure and relationship with communities on the ground is important to the agile nature of Whānau Order and the way that they serve our communities. What feedback is the Minister hearing about Wano Order support on the ground? Uh, Mr Speaker, the Minister for Māori Development and I visited uh, Te Matauwa Māori and had a good chance to speak with the likes of Te Taiwhenua Ki Here Taunga, uh, Whānau Order providers and those who are doing the mahi on the ground. 
they acknowledged the value of whānau water support and the support from this government received and that they also appreciated the flexible nature with which that support was provided during this time of crisis. What else is the government doing to support Māori communities? Uh, Mr Speaker, alongside the Minister for Māori Development and the Minister for Te Arawhiti, a further $15 million was announced last week to accelerate the Māori response to Cyclone Gabriel. The funding will support the continued coordination of services, ensuring whānau are accessing their full and correct entitlements, integrating government supports to provide holistic responses to whānau needs, and supporting their planning for future resilience. Mr Speaker, this includes, but not limited to, access to funding for marae rebuild or clean-up, papakainga rebuild or clean-up, mental and physical health support, as well as the holistic wraparound support. Mr Speaker, we should all be very proud of the work that Whānau Ora has done during this time. Uh, question number 11, Simeon Brown. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. Uh, my question is to the Minister for the Public Service. What actions, if any, has he taken to address the use of contractors and consultants in the public service? Uh, the Honourable Andrew Little. Mr Speaker, I am continuing the actions of my predecessor. Follow the leader. I'll start that again. I am, I am continuing the astute actions of my predecessor in ensuring the use by the public service of contractors and consultants is properly monitored and managed. In 2018, this government removed the cap on the core government administration which is what drove up contractors under the last government, and conveyed through the Public Service Commissioner to all public service agencies the expectation that they invest in building their core public service and reduce their reliance on external capability. Mr Speaker, we implemented a more transparent reporting method that now accurately reports on the spend of contractors and consultants. That spend is reported to the Public Service Commission on a quarterly basis. These measures saw the spending on contractors and consultants in the public service fall from 13.4% of spending on public service workforce in 2017-2018 to 10.4% in 2020-2021. The proportion rose in the 2021-2022 financial year to 14.6% because of COVID-19 and the government's reform programme. Change requires the core public service to engage external expertise in the form of contractors and consultants for short periods of time from time to time. If the member expects every problem to be addressed by adding a permanent full-time equivalent employee to the public service, then the permanent public service would be significantly larger than it is now. Has he uh, or his predecessor sent a memo or a minute to the Public Service Commissioner asking him to direct the Public Service to reduce its reliance on contractors and consultants? If not, why not? Uh, Mr Speaker, I draw the member's attention to my answer to his primary question, which is that we now engage in active monitoring of the public service's use of contractors uh, and consultants, and that is reported on a quarterly basis to the Public Service Commission, and that informs the actions of both the uh, Commission and, of course, of public service management. Will his active monitoring include sending a minute or a memo to the Minister of Transport for spending over $50 million on contractors and consultants for Auckland Light Rail, which has gone nowhere? Uh, Mr Speaker, what's important to recognise is that when, uh, as this government has faced many times, we have um, urgent situations arising, whether it's a worldwide pandemic or whether it's a cyclone response, 
that we have in place measures across our public service to provide support to people who need it most. And so, for example, in uh, the wake of the recent cyclone, Gabrielle, we've been able to put in place very, very quickly the means to get financial assistance to farmers and growers and members of the community who need it urgently. The member opposite and his party may trivialise the capability of the public service to do that, but it's absolutely vital to support our communities in their time of need. Point of order. Point of order. Uh, point of order, Sir Member. Uh, the question was in regards to his uh, monitoring and whether that would include expenditure on light rail. I didn't hear any reference to that through the entirety of that answer. Yeah, but the question also had a major assertion and that was addressed. Any further supplementary? Uh, the Honourable Michael Wood. Can the Minister confirm that significant transport projects such as the Eastern Busway, which have wide support in this House, cannot be delivered without the use of specialist contractors? Uh, Mr Speaker, the, the member um, makes a very important point, is that this is a government that has totally embraced the needs to step up the quality and capability of our transport networks, including our roading transport that had been neglected for nine years under the previous government because that froze funding and it redirected funding to a very small number of, of large projects um, in order to carry out projects that make a big difference to our metropolitan centres as well as our provincial centres. We need short-term expertise to come in and assist with the design and delivery of that capability. Does he think that spending $72 million on contractors and consultants last year to restructure the entire health system in the middle of a pandemic is a good use of taxpayers' money? And if not, will he be sending a minute or a memo to the former Minister of Health? Uh, Mr Speaker, the objectives of the health reform were to first of all make sure that rather than having 20 centres of decision-making and operation is that we consolidate that into one to ensure that we get consistency of health care across the country and it will also ensure that the, the appalling performance that our health system has had for Māori health is actually radically changed by the institution of the of Te Akawhai Order Māori Health Authority to provide leadership and tēnā for Māori for their health needs. And uh, that's an important investment that will last decades into the future and better serve the needs of all New Zealand communities. Uh, the Honourable Grant. Minister, consider a report that cost two hundred thousand uh, dollars pro bono work, as the former chair of the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council appears to do with the McKinsey report, which he called pro bono this morning on TV, but in fact cost two hundred thousand dollars. Mr Speaker, I think it is important that in the, in the public service that we do get our definitions correct and that pro bono means that you don't pay anything for it and that uh, advice costing $200,000 is labelled as advice costing $200,000 and if it comes from McKinsey, then it has come from a consultant. Does he think he will have any more success than his predecessor and getting the public service to reduce its reliance on expensive contractors and consultants? And if so, why? Uh, Mr Speaker, I draw the member's attention to my answer to his primary question, where I outlined actually the achievement of my predecessor in getting down the proportion of public service spend on consultants. Um, but what we can't predict or control for is the outbreak of a worldwide pandemic. Uh, question number 12, Rachel Brooking. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Commerce and Consumer Affairs. 
What additional services is the government rolling out to support homeowners affected by natural disasters? Uh, the Honourable Dr Duncan Webb. Oh, Mr Speaker. This government has worked swiftly to get a new service up and running to support homeowners who, whose properties have been affected by extreme weather events or natural disasters like we've seen in Nelson, Auckland, Tairawhiti, Coromandel and the Hawke's Bay. The New Zealand Claims Resolution Service, NZCRS, will provide expert support to homeowners with insurance claims after natural disasters to avoid disputes, resolve issues and ensure claims are settled as quickly as possible. What model does the National Claims Resolution Service follow and why? Mr Speaker, this kind of service was used to great effect in response to the Canterbury earthquakes to provide free advice to homeowners. It's become a much-needed one-stop shop for homeowners needing help with unresolved insurance claims and it's often proved a breakthrough. This Christchurch initiative helped over 10,000 homeowners and satisfaction surveys show that 90% of respondents say they would recommend the service. So we're expanding this fantastic service that worked well in Christchurch to make it a permanent and nationwide service for all forms of natural hazard. Thank you for your congratulations, Mr Ducey. Supplementary. When should people contact this service? Uh, Mr Speaker, the first port of call is always to work things through with the insurer. But if homeowners get stuck or need support with unresolved claims, then that's the time to contact this new service. I learned from Christchurch that early interven inter intervention before things go wrong and independent technical and legal advice are key, and that's what this service does. The new national service will now mean homeowners get the right advice at the right time. How many people has the service helped to date? Oh, um, great news, Mr Speaker. Since the North Island events, this service has helped more than 230 people. It's resolved 200 cases already, with many of these cases needing just to steer on the next steps as to what they should do. Of course, it's early days for this event, and as time goes by, more complex issues will occur and the service is ready to support those people to empower homeowners with the knowledge they need to resolve their claims. I would say to anyone struggling with their insurance claim that there are great people waiting to help you at the NZCRS who are both knowledgeable and compassionate. Call them. Uh, that concludes oral questions.